Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write a dissertation, um, take care of a baby, maybe get a job, maybe get a postdoc, <laughs> who knows at this point. Um, and today I'm really happy uh, to be joined by Dr. Susan Lanzoni. Um, we're going to be talking about her book on the history of empathy. Um, you can check out uh, Susan's uh, uh, website at susanlanzoni.com. And she also writes blogs uh, for Psychology Today. What, what what sort of things would I find, uh, uh, Susan, if I went to your Psychology Today blog list? What do you what do you write about? Well, recently I've um, drawn um, from my book some work on uh, empathy and race in the civil rights era, and I've written on the psychologist Kenneth B. Clark, who wrote quite a lot about the importance of empathy on the part of whites for the black experience in like the mid '60s, and castigated liberals for white liberals for not really going far enough in terms of joining the civil rights movement. So I have one or two blogs on race and empathy more recently. Another one on therapeutic empathy in the era of Carl Rogers, so the post-World War II clinical psychologist who um, kind of made empathy one of the main platforms of, or one of the key elements of his psychotherapeutic approach. Um, and then I do have my first blog there was on the surprising history of empathy, which kind of talks about the origins of the term and how empathy as, um, in its original meaning really meant a projection of the self into objects, um, and was very linked to art history. Let's talk about that, that weird early phase of, of, of the history of empathy, because when I got into this book, I thought that I knew what empathy meant. And I think that most of my listeners have an idea of what empathy means. Like I could, I can say like, this person is a very empathetic person. Like this, you know, the grad student yep. advisor was not very empathetic. Like we know what that means. Right. But take us back to uh, the early 20th century. And let's not talk about empathy right now. Let's talk about a German word kind of called Einfühlung, which I think in the, the the early 20th century was one of those untranslatable German words like Weltschmerz that people always talk about. Tell what's 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 Einfühlung and like why why was it important? Yeah, so Einfühlung was um, a German term that really became. Um, talked about as a noun, as something you do feel into something around like the 1860s, 1870s in German art historical circles. And there was sort of also this uh, overlap between um, psychologists who were interested in the response, the spectator's response to a work of art. So it was a kind of description of what happens between the subject uh, spectator and the object of art. And the idea was that you project this um the spectator would project their own feelings often their own movements or imagine movements into the object they were viewing or experiencing um and so one definition um by the by the 1890s um theodore lips who was a prominent german psychologist wrote a ton on psychological aesthetics um, talked about Einfühlung as the power of projecting one's personality into and so fully comprehending the object of contemplation. 
much. And okay, his what, definition. What kind of, uh, objects are we talking about here? Are we talking about like, do I feel into a painting? Do I feel into a mountain? Yep, exactly. So, the mountain was actually um, talked about a lot. In the um, Vernon Lee was another empathy theorist in this period, and she said one of the best examples of empathy is this idea of feeling that this mountain in the distance is rising. And how did that happen? Well, you look out and you sort of sense the mountain is sort of moving up into the clouds, perhaps. But really what's going on there is a kind of projection of the self's inner feelings of striving. And this is where it became very um, complicated debates about whether there's this inner sense of activity or feeling or there's actual movements that the person is doing, like stretching their neck up or you know, elongating their body. So was it actual movement, inner imagined movement? These were things that were trying to, you know, that psychologists were all kind of debating. But the idea was that you kind of use the self in this way to animate or to, you know, to sort of make that mountain look like it was rising. And that was sort of what we kind of naturally did and it was sort of a heightened response in aesthetic experience. Um, if we look, so, at so it's it, not like a normal thing. Like I'm not, I'm fooling my 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 fork or my my coffee cup. It's it's when I have a particularly aesthetic experience when 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 like I'm looking at a mountain and my jaw drops and I'm like oh rising up with a mountain or something. Well, I think it, that was also up for debate, but. Um, Vernon Lee comes to the conclusion, like she says in her book, The Beautiful, 1913, which was a kind of popularization of the idea that when we talk about paths winding and, um, you know, a, um, you know, the, the clouds dropping down, all these movements that we sort of see as if, um, as if the landscape around us is almost animate and moving is actually the work of empathy. So for some people, it was broader than only the, it was kind of um, maybe heightened in the aesthetic response, but it was a tendency we had to sort of um, feel into our surroundings. And, um, you know, for, for Lips, he thought it was key to a, the aesthetic response because we would experience pleasure in this moment when we kind of were in this moment of contemplation and were more aware of it. And it's essentially the self was objectified in that object of contemplation. So it's this very interesting model of um, relating to the world, but mostly relating to objects aesthetically by, you know, by putting ourselves in their place in some ways. And then we see, we think the mountain is rising, but really we've contributed to that. Yeah. So when we, when we, I'm fooling in this period is I, I see the mountain and I have this aesthetic experience and the aesthetic experience is heightened, is, is, is different, is special because I imagine myself in the mountain and I feel my body going up like the mountain goes up. I feel that strength. I feel that striving. Right. But yeah, right. But the idea is that you, you have your own sort of bodily experience, whether overt or inner, but then you experience it in the mountain. So you project it in the, so even though it's part of yourself, you experience it as the mountain doing it. Yeah. So that's the sort of model of objectification that you don't localize it in yourself because you're so connected in that moment to the mountain. You're not thinking about yourself. And, you know, lips would say things like, if you start to think about your own body, you kind of ruin that aesthetic moment when you're kind of engaged 
Okay, but it is it, it is in my own body, but I, am, I I I experience it as if it's happening in an object, right? Like, so if I see a cowering uh, figure in a painting, I will I might myself cower a little, but I will experience it as if there's cowering in the painting. Yeah, and so the whole role of how yes, how this directionality goes. So it goes to some degree from the self to the object, but then the object sort of triggers certain things in the self. And what you see, interestingly, is as this sort of model of empathy is developed in art psychology in, say, the 20s, um, it becomes almost a model of imitation, right? So it kind of, you know, it's, it's very complex and there's many layers, you know, when you start to read these German texts. But there's a kind of simplified version, which is, I see movement and I kind of imitate movement. And so by the 30s, you have art, you have psychology textbooks in the United States showing, for instance, someone, uh, a jumper. I have this image in my book, um, you know, um, an athlete jumping over a pole and you have the trainer in the background and he's raising his leg because he's sort of moving himself in imitation of the jumper going over the pole. And that the caption is empathy. So it, it has, what I try to t- bring out in the book is that empathy has a real kinesthetic aspect, right? So it's about the body, it's about bodily experience. Um, sometimes it has, uh, you know, this more complex way of projection, and sometimes it's just this simple motor imitation. You know, I watch something move, and I feel that same inclination to move, and maybe I even make an overt movement. And that was understood by psychology, art psychologists as empathy. Okay, let's uh, let's let's talk a little bit about how that word "einfühlen," which, as we've described it right now, completely uh, backs up all of my intuitions about nineteenth-century German people talking about art. Like it seems very mystical. Like there's a lot of big words. Yeah. Uh, how did "einfühlen" turn into? empathy like what how did that translate it was untranslated for a while right like if i had a yeah or, or a difficult to translate world word like were there other translations available and how did they settle on this on this english word empathy which feels like you know if you told me it went back to shakespeare i i, I would be i would believe you it feels like an english word well there was definitely debate over its translation and so i tried to track like when it first entered the english language um Interestingly, uh, the turn of the century, um, British and American psychologists were compiling a dictionary of all these new psychological terms. Because the thing to remember historically here is that psychology as an academic discipline, as a scientific kind of offshoot of philosophy, is just developing laboratories and a whole new kind of disciplinary agenda in like the 1870s to the 1900s. And many of those laboratories are based in Germany, not all. So what you have is a German expertise that has to actually be translated so um, into English and other languages. So this dictionary attempted to do that. Um, and it was like a whole number of psychologists contributed to it. Okay, so so in in this time period, psychology is like still really new. Yes. And a lot of the most cutting edge research is in German. Exactly. Okay, so the work of a lot of English speaking psychologists was to translate all this cool German work into English. Yep. So like William James had one early laboratory here in the States. Um, 
But most um, early scholars that were interested in studying psychology and doing laboratory studies and experiments on human sensation and perception went to Germany to get their training. Uh, then they would spread out and, you know, develop laboratories, you know, in their um, respective countries. So interestingly, what, what happens with um, Einfühlung is that it's first translated as, as aesthetic sympathy. And um, so the idea that it's aesthetic, that it's part of this particular response is kind of dominant. And then I tracked down around 1908, you see that this new term empathy is appearing both in um, at the Cornell Laboratory um, by this prominent psychologist, Edmund Titchener. Um, and he talks about it in 1909, and it's it's in a text, so everyone attributes it to him, the translation of empathy. But there's also James Ward, who's a professor at, the, um, at Trinity College at the University of Cambridge, and all his students basically say he's translating it as empathy in the, around that same year. So I haven't figured out exactly why 1908 or, nine, you know, that this aesthetic sympathy ceased to be adequate. Um, but the sense is that this new word had to sort of make some distinction between sympathy, which, which had, you know, clearly connections to empathy and, but it, empathy was somehow different. And it was about this kind of, um, again, it was a multi, it meant a number of things, but it had the sense of immersion, like a sort of yeah. spatial entry into this other experience. And, and um, what, what, what precisely do these words, like they made them up, but like empathy, like what are the, what, what do they mean? Like what, so they what's do the draw diff- from the Greek. Um, okay. so there was an older Greek term. Um, I don't, I can't really pronounce the Greek, but, um, but that kind of meant pathos. It comes from feeling, right? Hmm. So um, when Titchener described it, because he kind of, he said it was um, feeling into a situation. And it kind of mirrors the ein part of the uh, feeling in. Einfühlung is in feeling, literally, hmm. in the German. So it was trying to mirror that a little bit. Um, and even though it, it kind of went back to the Greek, the Greek meaning was sort of impassioned, you know, and sometimes overly impassioned, which was not the meaning that um, empathy had as related to Einfühlung, because okay. empathy was really trying to translate what this German word was. Is What's really interesting is once it was translated into the English, um, and then we can talk about how it became popularized by the post-World War II period, it gets retranslated into German as empathie, and so the Einfühlung sort of is lo- like like is no longer referred to in the same way. Like empathy in German now sort of has taken on these meanings that um, have a- been accorded to sort of the the later understandings of empathy. Yeah, you can see just how much. The, I mean, one of the the, the mind blowing things about this book is that you take this feeling that this word that I think I know what it means, empathy. And you show how its meaning slips dramatically over time, over the possible course of an individual human being's life. Like you could 
be born, you yeah. know, in, 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 right. in, in the Einfühlung era and live on into the empathy era right. relatively easily and probably yep. not notice that this word had changed. Um, but let's, let's just uh, get to the, the, the popularization. Something I noticed happening in your story is that in like 1860, 1890, if you're talking about Einfühlung, you're talking about an object, you're talking about a person feeling into a thing, mm-hmm. probably a beautiful or, 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 or sublime thing, but a thing. But then you mentioned this, this, this image, uh, of a, of a jumper, a pole vaulter with, with his trainer. And that's labeled as empathy. And the trainer is, is, is feeling into the person. And how does that happen? How does empathy move from something that we feel to an object to a person? Yeah. So what um, Lips does, so Lips, who I referred to as talking quite a bit about the aesthetic conception, he says it is, he moves from that aesthetic conception to the possibility of empathizing with other people, but he's still using this model of like, you see someone's facial expression and maybe it looks sad. And then you take your own feeling of sadness and you basically attach it project it into the other person's experience. He does extend this possibility to other people. So it's not the first or dominant or original model, but it does kind of come in there. But interestingly, it's almost on the model of things, like almost animating the other person's expression with your own feeling of sadness. Uh, And then it gets very complex because there's a number of phenomenologists, um, Edmund Husserl, Edith Stein, Max Shaler. Can, can, can you just tell me what a phenomenologist means? It's, uh, since undergrad, people have used it, and I have no, like, I've pretended to know what it means, but what's a phenomenon? Like, what is phenomenology? Um, it's a sort of study of phenomena, like what appears as a, you know, it's kind of like we're not going to get to the noumena as in Kant's idea of like what's behind the things themselves. We're going to look at the things, like what's okay. phenomenally apparent. And so it's a sort of philosophical continental movement that um, you can sort of say um, Edmund Husserl was like a, a huge figure there. Martin Heidegger, uh, before him, Franz Brentano. These are they're trying to look at the contents of consciousness as they are. So it's kind of developing around the time empirical psychology is developing, but it's almost this method of introspection where you sort of bracket your understanding of the natural world, but, and just say, how, how is the thinking process constituted? Um, it gets, it can get very abstract, even though it's supposed to kind of be based on, um, you know, as Husserl said, the things themselves. So sort of without having, um, these overarching models. So, so these phenomenologists get their hands on empathy. Yeah. And, um, so this, and so they're trying to examine, like what happens in the mind. And so Edith Stein, who's a very interesting figure, writes her dissertation on empathy in 19, published in 1916. Um, And so her view of empathy is that you always have within your mind, you have your own experience and the experience of the other. And that experience of the other, even though you're imagining it can never be a primordial experience for you. So there will always be this kind of difference. And she's she's responding to Lips, who 
argued that you can actually merge these experiences in some sense. That gets very kind of um, detailed and philosophical. All this to say is that in the teens, in the German philosophical world, there's a lot of debate about how you can, how empathy is marshaled for intersubjectivity, for understanding the other. And um, so it is there. Um, in the United States, what you see is mostly this art psychology just, um, model, feeling into things, feeling into lines, how lines might, you know, demonstrate emotion if a line goes up, you know, and has you know, wavy lines moving upwards are seen as more um, happy or positive than lines moving downward. These were ex examples of um, uh, experiments done in the 20s. Um, but I do track in the book a kind of understanding of others that's kind of um, happening a little bit. There's some examples in psychiatry, examples in sociology, um, um, and th they're sort of happening under the radar a bit because empathy is still being explored, I think. Is this a scientific term? Can we use it in a social science context? Um it's still kind of, um, it's not really the dominant way of understanding empathy until the post-World War II period. Yeah, let's talk about that. I, I have in front of me this great uh, Google Ngram, which I'll post on the, 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 the website, my website for, for people to look at, that charts the use of empathy from 1900 to 2000. And it, you know, from 1900, it's not, not many people are using empathy. Then there's a little bump. Um, from 1910 to, to 1920, the bump gets a little bigger up to 1930. Then we hit 1940, and empathy explodes, and it keeps on exploding up to 2000. So, so what we've described so far is that early bump part, where empathy is this this seemingly like a, a, a pretty arcane word that's yep. being talked about by German art historians, by phenomenologists, uh, it's it's debate. Its precise meanings are debated between with with psychiatrists, psychologists, psychoanalysts. How does that become a word that that I talk about? You know, in couples therapy, about how I should be more empathetic to my wife. Right, right. <laughs> like how does how does it become something that 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 is no longer a five dollar or fifteen dollar word? Yeah. So that is. Um Right, this interesting transition because at one point I looked at, you know, just to mark this transition, I looked at dictionaries and you cannot find the word empathy in a generic dictionary until about 1944. I think that was the date. Um, so, for instance, there's like a, you know, technical psychological Warren's psychology dictionary of 1934. It's there, but it's not in Webster's in the 30s. So, I think what happens is kind of, you know, what happens around World War II. So um, essentially, you know, there's a lot of literature in you know, the history of the sciences, the history of the psychological sciences, that World War II was like a boon to um, the discipline of clinical psychology and psychiatry. And reason being was, of course, that there were many soldiers that came back after the war um, that had, you know, um, psychiatric, um, problems or tr at that point you can't even use the term post-traumatic stress cause that term wasn't used till 1980. That was, um, 
So we would call it that, but they were using war neurosis. It was a bit much more Freudian model. Um, but the reality was there was a lot of soldiers needing psych- psychological and psychiatric care. There was a lot more interest in psychology. You can see psychology sort of booming as a profession. Clinical psychologists were struggling with psychiatrists to be able to do therapies. And so they're kind of getting, um, you know, the the professional um, okay to sort of step into that realm. Before that, they were only doing testing and, you know, testing protocols. And is this, um, is this the difference when you mentioned the difference between clinical psychologists and clinical psychiatrists? That's the difference between like somebody who'll sit down and talk with you or like study human behavior and somebody who like will prescribe you medicine. Yeah. So the psychiatrists are medical professionals and they are at this point very Freudian. So they're using psychoanalytic models um, and they're also beginning to use drug therapies, which only come in like, I mean, the, the sort of psycho, um, anti-psychotic drugs are only coming in in like 1954. Psychologists don't have that medical training. So th- that's where they're kind of, um, <clears throat> there, there's a lot of debates about what, you know, who has what kind of um, professional responsibilities. And there's a huge debate in like the fo- late 40s and 50s if clinical psychologists are going to be able to do therapy. Um which the psychologists do win. So, so we're, we're, we're at the end of World War II. There's a lot of broken people. Uh, and the, there's also a number of professional organizations that have solutions for these broken people. And, the, you know, this is also the time where the, the federal government sets up the NIMH, which is one of the first divisions of the NIH, National Institutes of Health. So there's a lot of federal attention going into, you know, mental health. Um, the, you know, there's a books on psychology, the popularization of psychology, people reading, you know, pop psychology, you know, it sort of explodes too. Hmm. And so it's all in this context that you see this word empathy entering into the public um, domain. And in one article, for instance, um, it kind of said, you know, it, it kind of said, well, this technical term of the psychologist, you know, or this um, sophisticated term. So there's a very, uh, there's an awareness that, you know, we're going to take these psychological terms and kind of use them because they have so much insight for today's, you know, life and society. It's like one of those people give a TED talk and, and take their, their like yeah. academic research on the mind and are like, here, peer popular audience run with exactly. it. Exactly. I think yeah. it was exactly that moment. So you had a certain amount of like, you know, um, uh, you had, you know, you had this charisma, you had this authority, you were the psychologist who could tell people how to live. And mm. I think there was a number of also, I mean, I think the idea of the sort of, you know, treating soldiers and treating people, um, mentally injured by the war. There was also new media at the time. So you yeah. see new t- TV and 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 empathy actually gets thrown around in this atmosphere as well as a way to connect to an audience, right? Yeah, it, it's in this discussion that I felt that empathy became more like the word that uh, the, the meaning that I use empathy for. There's 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 a quote that you have that I wrote down because it it just seems so apt. Uh, somebody's discussing empathy in movies. And they say, well, they just they say what empathy means. And they say, it's the power of injecting an emotion into the audience intravenously. 
Yeah. Yeah. So how how does that how do, how does that meaning of empathy change from like I feel into an object or a person to jack, you know poking yourself with a hypodermic needle and injecting <laughs> raw emotion into yourself? Right. It's hard to, you know, it's like I say, there's not like a moment where it switches, but Mm. there are, it's seen as some kind of interpersonal dynamic, right? It's it's a way of connecting in this very broad sense. And then the way that connection happens between people um, is where you see many different interpretations. So what I try to track is at least in those post-war years, Sometimes it's seen as this emotional, like direct emotional contagion model, almost that injecting model. Other times, like uh, Reader's Digest first defines it in 1955. And they say that you're, you're so, you know, you connect with someone's emotion. I don't have the direct quote right here at my hands, but, um, but that you're, you're, you're sort of controlled enough to not let it get the better of you. So, so already, and this one's drawing from, I think, the therapeutic model of empathy, which is um, a much more controlled, and there's a kind of rational cognitive element there. Like you, you're trying to sense the, the other person's emotion, and you sort of share it, you know, Carl Rogers say, it's as if you have that emotion, but you're never, but you're never totally immersed in it, in the sense that you lose your position. And that, as if, is key to empathy. So, like with sympathy, I, I will, I might feel something just as if, I, if I see my daughter crying, I might feel pain, her pain, as if it were my own. But empathy, there's a kind of simile going on in, in this particular construction of empathy, where I'm kind of, I, I, I can have some distance to it, to that feeling. Yes, and it's okay. not. It's so that even goes back to the idea, you know, I was saying briefly, Edith Stein questioning lips that you can't fully merge with the thing or person you're empathizing with, that there's always something um, there's um, and Stein says this, that the, the very quality of empathy is that it's someone else's experience. So it can never be wholly yours. Um, which I find, I mean, I, I try to look at this sort of expanse historically, but I find that really interesting that there's always a tension, right? Because um, it's, you know, and Carl Rogers uses that term that he's, and he's, you know, he's the clinical psychologist that, you know, becomes extremely popular after World War II. He develops treatments, short-term treatments for soldiers, um, and then says empathy is this way that the therapist has of not judging, not diagnosing Mm. even, not imputing their own ideas about this person's experience, but trying to, you know, experience in a way that person's, you know, what that person's telling you, their emotions, their, um, you know, what they're presenting to you as if it were your own, right? So you sort of try it on. um, And that's, that's his model. But, you know, there is an as if that kind of keeps something separate in that experience. Yeah. yeah and so, so there's this, there's this moment where, where popular psychology is, is, is booming in a way and people are wrestling because of this, with the problem of understanding 
kinds of psychological experiences that are that are different to theirs. A, a therapist sitting across the couch with the, a, a shell-shocked soldier talking about the horrors of war has to have empathy for them. Uh, a, a, a simple, you know, understanding their feeling as they're feeling without judging it. You know, don't be an idiot for for jumping at the sound of a of a firework. Right. Like that. You, you have to like, like somehow get into their feeling without completely sinking into it. Is, is that kind of what 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 this is at this point? I think so, at least in the therapeutic vein. So I think you can track a kind of therapeutic empathy that sort of uses it as this tool. Um, and, you know, I think psychoanalysts also kind of come to empathy in, in the late 50s. Heinz Kohut, for example, is is a major proponent of empathy. He calls it vicarious introspection. Hmm. So there are many different, you know, I think the funny thing about empathy is people keep defining it and kind of articulating <laughs> it's, you know, well, what this is, it's, it's more emotional, it's more cognitive, it's, um, um, but in the therapeutic vein, I think Rogers does call it that it's it's a kind of use of your own emotional engagement but a kind of in a controlled way um i just wanted to i want to point out one other thing about what happens in this post-world war ii period um which i think contributes to why empathy gets a lot of attention and i think um that's also because there are a number of you know not psychologists social science social scientists sociologists who say you know, the natural, you know, I think the, um, you know, the use of the atom bomb, you know, the nuclear, uh, the possibilities of nuclear war uh, was like a huge um, issue. And people were like horrified by this potential. Plus, of course, you know, the, the mass um, deaths in the concentration camps and there's the horrors of Nazi Germany. So a lot of psychologists, social psychologists said, we as a field, social social sciences, are way behind the natural sciences, right? So the natural yeah. sciences are moving in this this you know rather rapidly, and we don't have the tools to you know um, allow people to get along. We haven't studied it. We don't know how people can live with one another without fighting and killing each other. And yeah, so, so the natural sciences are, are 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 you know in this time period getting tons of successes. That are horrifying: nuclear bombs, uh, planes, napalm, all of which seem to increase the power of human beings to do violence against other human beings. And part of this 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 empathy movement is a response to say, "Hey, look, social psychologists, sociologists, people who are in the human sciences, we need to 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 keep up the pace to make sure that humanity doesn't destroy itself." Exactly. And I think it is a moment where then it, empathy goes under the like. You, you, I, I I don't know. I, there's a number of articles that say empathy a neglected topic. Empathy has been overlooked. Empathy has not been studied. <laughs> empathy, you know, that's a kind of refrain. Yeah. In this period. So we started off with empathy being a feeling of 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 yourself in an object. Then we moved on to the feeling of yourself in a person. Then we moved on to a situation where it's you're 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 having this moment where you're feeling another person's, an individual's uh, psychological state as if they were your own. 
let's move on to, to how empathy is, is, is something that, that people are talking about as a solution for societal ills, something that's a little bit bigger in scale. Yeah. So um, I think that follows with this concern of sociologists um, and psychologists about, you know, how human beings understand each other and whether or not they do. And so um, I do look in the book to some of the first experimental studies of empathy, which um, are interesting, done by this woman, Rosalind Diamond Cartwright. In 1948, she wrote a dissertation on empathy and tried to study social psychology, you know, her social psychology students and how well they could predict hmm. how another person w- would um, talk about themselves as, uh, you know, on a personality test. Um, and so what happens in the 40s and 50s is that there's like this burst of research on how well do people understand each other. And here I find the, the interesting thing is now projection is seen as antithetical to empathy. So in these studies at Dartmouth, for instance, if you're trying to predict what your, um, you know, your fellow student might say about themselves, um, you know, what they found is they're pretty, you know, the students were pretty bad at that. And most often they predicted what they thought as opposed hmm. to what the other person thought. So the conclusion <laughs> of a lot of these studies was that people were not very good at understanding other people and essentially projecting, which again was the early definition of empathy. But, you know, so the term accurate empathy kind of comes into play. And now you see it as a tool, like as a, can it be used as a scientific tool? to sort of be like, get it right. Like I'm going to try to predict what someone else is saying. It's not just like, Oh, I can feel myself into the mountain and it's this, you know, intense experience, aesthetic experience. It's now how good am I at really knowing what that other person is going to say or. (laughs) And the, and the, the point there's, there's like a very 1950s, uh, example of this where like you get tests to measure quantitatively your empathy that's used for for figuring out who's going to be a good manager right <laughs> like hey look to be a good manager to 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 make sure that your your staff don't revolt you're going to take like a multiple choice test and get a get a number out of 100 or what some of these early empathy tests was one was for math what was called mass empathy you had to predict what kind of music non-office factory workers liked. So maybe they like polka music or maybe they like square <laughs> dancing music. So it was a kind of tool to like assess groups of people too. Uh, yeah. So it was used in, in many different ways. Um, but the sense that it, it could to some degree be a, either a, a skill, um, a capacity, an ability that could bring people together or bring people, um, give people greater understanding of one another, I think was key to how it was used in all these different instantiations. Right. Um, and so you see in some cases too, and um, I think I talked about this at the beginning, a psychologist like Kenneth B. Clark, who was instrumental in um, writing up the social science statement for the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision. He was very much a public, you know, figure, a civil rights activist. Um, he, I just found over and over again in his writings, um, this 
pleading for empathy on the part of his white liberal, you know, colleagues. So you have to understand the black experience. You're just not getting it. You're still not really on board with the movement. And, and he kept coming back to empathy. And he too, in 1979 said empathy is not, is still not a topic that has gotten enough attention. Um, in the social sciences, we don't get it. We don't understand it. We, um, and he saw it as part, you know, some people say, well, it's a psychology. How would that work into his a political model? But I think he saw it as a, a psychological basis for recognizing basically the humanity of black citizens. And if that piece was in play, then the political, um, you know, the, the political, um, po- the policies would follow of, of kind of granting people equal rights and sort of making sure they were full-fledged citizens in the political and policy sense of the word, if that empathy piece was connected to it. I, I just want to slow down over this because I think that it's a, a, a really interesting moment. So so we've talked about empathy as like a, a, a feeling that you get over time. And now we, we have a different sort of thing where empathy is a capacity for, for understanding people, the, the position of people who are not like yourself. Is that, is yep. that correct? Yeah. And, um, I mean, it is a capacity, you know, for, for Kenneth Clark, he talked about it in terms of, you know, relation between black and white Americans and that you needed, um, at some deep level to understand, you know, and that was, he used the term um, empathic reason in his writing, which I really liked because it kind of said that you had this thinking component, but you also connected it up with a feeling component. And that was sort of the most powerful response to understanding um, others who were different from you, who had very different backgrounds and experiences. And I think he really thought white America had no conception and no feeling for black experience. And it, because that was the case, um, the, there was very little progress, um, that could be made on, on civil rights. But then empathy is a, uh, some, this capacity for empathy is not, you know, you're not stuck with it. You can develop it. And, and so empathy, like developing this empathy on the part of white Americans is the basis of a political project, right? Yeah. And what I saw was um, he wrote one of his books, Dark Ghetto. He wrote and he began, he grew up in Harlem and he began with all these like very painful comments of people being spit on the street and, you know, these very kind of horrific moments of degradation. And and he writes in his preface how this is a sociological track because it's trying to look at you know, Harlem and look at all these sort of um, social aspects of living there. But it's also um, an emotional, you know, sort of presentation of life. And he, he very, he, you know, he presented this around, I think he wrote this around 1965. That was when he also took a bit of it. Um, and this was in his um, New York Times opinion piece called Delusions of the White Liberal that he published in 1965 from the book, Dark Ghetto. Um, but he, it was, he thought about presenting this material in both an emotional and a social science way to appeal 
to people to get them to feel empathy to to, to perhaps educate this response. Um, and it was a kind of deliberate and interesting move from an academic, right? He was trying to combine both levels of appeal for a political end, I think. Now, we're going to have to not dive into your, your, your work on the history of mirror neurons. It's really great. Anybody who's curious should check out the book. But I, I, want, to, I want to close with a, with a final question, which is sure. what, what, the, the book is really incredibly curious and also, like, I wonder at the end of it, like, empathy goes through so many different changes. It seems that every every decade there's a new meaning for empathy. Is and and sometimes I feel like that that's like I know this is not the intention, but I feel it's a little deflationary. I'm like, what on earth is, is there such a thing as empathy? <laughs> like, what is yeah. like maybe is this all just uh, you know a language game? Like, are we all just like trap? Like, so. Is there a thing called empathy? Like, do, do I, when we talk about like the, this, the, the practical need for empathy in society, I'm with you. I'm like, man, I, I, we need that. How can we reconcile the the slipperiness of a term like empathy when we look at the history of it with uh, it being something that we need in our daily lives today in 2020 America? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question, and. Um... I guess what my response is after I read it, I thought, you know, I mistitled this book. I should have called it Empathies Plural. And um, I think that's more on target because I think there are just many different empathies. And I think they all connect up. You know, some people would say to me, well, we should just get rid of the term. It's too slippery. It doesn't mean anything. And it's like, well, OK, you, you define love for me. You want to get rid of that term? <laughs> And it's, I think it's one of those complex terms that, um, you know, it gets at something. And I think that something is this sort of question of connection, you know. Mm. Um, and some people say, well, you can use empathy for ill. And that's true, too. You can understand, you know, someone else's experience and then do kind of, you know, manipulate that. Um, but I think at its core, it is trying to get at how we connect with other people's experience how we understand it, how we feel it, think about it, imagine it. And I think those are all aspects of it. And not only other people, but in the earlier sense, you know, um, objects, nature. Um, I've written a piece on eco-empathy lately, like what might it mean to feel into trees and mountains? And then would that act to sort of change our relationship to our ecosystem, our environment? Um, so I think it challenges us to think about the very many ways we connect with others in the world. And I think that's a good thing. I think connection overall is a good thing. And the question is, it's been, there's not one way to do it. And I think that's where empathies in the plural can kind of be a nice way of thinking about it. Great. Well, th thank you very much for taking the time to connect with us today, Susan. Um, thank you to all of the listeners out there. Thank you to Duncan Barton, who made the image for the show, and Jonathan Lear, who made the music. Uh, if, thank you for, for telling your in-laws about the show. If you've told your in-laws, in-laws like the show. If you have in-laws, tell them to listen. Um, visit the website, historian.live, for uh, show notes, uh, book recommendations, images, 
uh, links to my newsletter and all of that stuff. Thank you again, Susan. Uh, we will be back next week uh, to talk about love in Soviet Russia. 